0: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Cinefleck. I am your host Ethan Colburn. This is episode 20. Big milestone and I just want to thank you guys all again for listening. This has been uh so fun and it's gotten way bigger than I expected it to. So that's been that's been a pleasant surprise. But a surprise nonetheless. Um I'm thinking maybe I should do something fun for episode 25 since that's another big thing coming up. So if you guys have any questions, uh, I mean questions, if you guys have any ideas for what I should do for that, please uh, send me a message on my Instagram or Twitter. And uh, yeah, you can also go to my Instagram and Twitter to check out this week's drink, the Hoboken, which is the first custom cocktail we've had on the show invented by baker herself who is one of two guests on this week's episode we have B- baker gonzalez and richard chandler and and they're both on letterboxd you may know baker on Letterbox as cuckoo chanel that's her username uh they are a couple and they were so so fun to have on the show the drinks were great conversation was great um I hope we can have them on again sometime. I had a really, really great time chatting with them. So yeah, please check those things out. Uh, another another announcement. I'm going to be doing my Sean Connery tribute episode very soon, and I'm still collecting Sean Connery impressions. So you can email a like a 10-second clip to Cinefleck at gmail.com or you can send a message. Anchor.fm slash Cineflect slash message. And I'll have the link for that in the show notes as well. Uh, But I'm trying to collect a few more. It'd be fun to have like a kind of complete compilation there. So please send one in if you can. Doesn't matter how horrible it is. I I think that they've all been really funny so far. So yeah, Um, we have some big shows coming up. Um, that I have yet to announce So, But some big things are in the works So stay tuned on Instagram and Twitter I will announce those as soon as I can Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode Hope you enjoy This
1: is my church And if you don't think Christ is down here on the waterfront You've got another guest coming Jesus stands alongside you in the shape-up He sees why some of you get picked And some of you get passed over he sees the family man worrying about getting the rent, and getting food in the house for the wife and the kids. He sees you selling your souls to the mob for a day's pay. The next bum to throw something deals with me. I don't care if he's twice my size. Now, what does Christ think of the easy money boys who do none of the work and take all of the gravy? And how does he feel about the fellows who wear hundred and fifty dollar suits and diamond rings?
0: Baker Richard, welcome. Welcome. Hi. To- it's so great to have you guys on. You guys are like one of my first, uh, two of my first l- l- listeners, I should say. So it's, it's, um, it, it's an honor to have you guys on and uh, I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this movie.
2: No, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us on. We love your podcast since day one, A1 since day one, for sure. <laughs>
0: yeah, thanks so much. So we're- to
3: check in here from Flyover America.
0: yeah from from louisville kentucky um yeah so so um i wanted to ask so so we're doing on the waterfront and for on the waterfront we're doing we're drinking hobokens um you you are i made up (laughs) i love it i love it so so you are a bartender and you made up this cocktail um this is my first bartender I've had on the show. I I'd love it if you could just explain how you came up with this drink. It's such a fun idea.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so the whole idea of the cocktail is sort of born out of the um, the Manhattan, which has its own kind of like family of of delineation cocktails, like the Brooklyn, Brooklyn and yeah. also one called the Newark. Uh, that they're all in a Manhattan vein. They're kind of um, manhattan family and so i thought we could do something that was kind of a riff on um that little family and add hoboken in there which is where on the waterfront uh takes place and so it is um equal parts um, applejack which is a new jersey spirit um Mm -hmm. it's like apple brandy basically um that has been blended with a little bit of neutral grain spirit um but ostensibly um you could substitute apple brandy in it's stead, but um the laird's brand that i used is uh, one of america's kind of older spirits companies and they are based in new jersey oh cool yeah and then you'll see in the film they do a little bit of offloading of crates of irish whiskey and it is jameson so i also did an equal part of jameson in the cocktail and um Manhattans typically have a sweet vermouth, and there's kind of like this fusion of Irish and Italian um, cultures, it seems like um, in the film. So I used an Italian aperitivo called Punta Mess, which is just a little bit more bitter than a traditional sweet vermouth, but any sweet vermouth would be just fine in the cocktail. And as far as the Jameson is concerned, you could substitute your favorite whiskey. It's not hard and fast rule. I just did it as an homage to the film, and then, a half ounce of what bartenders know as Ferrari, which is equal parts Campari and Frenette Branca, um, both Italian um, sort of aperitivo or liqueurs, Amari, depending on who you want to ask. Um, a lot of Italians will say Campari is not an Amari, so or an Amaro rather. So anyway, that's super technical, but um, so it's a quarter ounce each of Frenette and Campari. So. One ounce, oh. one ounce, one ounce of the Applejack, of the uh, Jameson, and of the Sweet Vermouth or punta Mes Apertivo, and then one quarter ounce each of Frenet and Campari, and then you just stir it with ice, and you can have it on the rocks if you want. I like to pour it and serve it up, that way it doesn't dilute anymore. Right, right. But it's very boozy, and it's um, kind of a bitter quality to it
0: it's strong and bitter yeah totally 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 and i love the glasses that you guys have for it
2: yeah they're just like your standard kind of like (laughs) coop
0: yeah and then and then um and and then thank you for sending me the photo for instagram as well you're 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 the first guest to actually take the photo (laughs) for me well,
2: it's only because I'm a control freak Virgo. It's not you, it's me. I promise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I love it. Uh, um, so how long have you bar- bartended, and what what's the what's the place you're working at now? How's how, how how's that all going?
2: So I have been in the hospitality industry basically since I joined the workforce. Um, mm-hmm. obviously, haven't been bartending since then because I was underage at the time. But I've been bartending for several years. Um. And most recently, I opened the world's second largest whiskey bar. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, but it was really short-lived. We were open for exactly one month before we had to close for COVID.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: gosh. We opened on February 15th, and we closed down March 15th. Um, And then we got a note on March 16th saying, hey, don't come in. And we don't know when you can come back or anyone can come back. And then I just kind of works and worse because the location of the bar is located um downtown which is the central business district of the mm-hmm. city mm-hmm. and it's just not reviving yet because that's where all the like hotels and the convention center etc but also i work at um a tiki bar which is a bar that specializes in tropical drinks um being in california you guys probably know what that is but some folks might not yeah yeah i know what
0: a tiki bar is yeah,
2: yeah of course <laughs> you- are
0: two very different kinds of bars i guess
2: <laughs> yeah yeah so, you, I mean, you guys live...
0: We live in Palo Alto, so we're up in, like, northern California, but yeah.
2: So, it's a little bit further south, that movement, where it started, but still, you guys would have heard of Smuggler's Co. and tricks and all that kind of stuff that, goodness, that you have in California that we don't have here, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only tiki bar in the city, so... Um, that's why I have my
0: little pineapple here. <laughs> nice. You're celebrating. I love it. Um, yeah. No. What a what a fun what a fun drink option. And it's it's um it, it's great to it's great to have a bartender on the show. Do you guys want to um um I, I, I'm I'm not sure which one of you wants to take this, but um just give like a brief synopsis of the movie before we get too far into. There we go,
3: Richard. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, on the waterfront, uh, directed by Elia Kazan, produced by Sam Spiegel, written by Bud Schulberg. Uh, it's from 1954. Eventually uh, released through uh, Paramount, I believe.
0: Wasn't it? What was it? Columbia.
3: Was it Columbia? Yo, you're right. It was Cone. Yeah. I remember a big. You're right, you're right. You're right. It was Columbia. Uh, Cone rejected it initially, but yeah. it came oh, back. interesting. It had a. It had a really tangled production history mm. i mean like kazan was working on a waterfront project with arthur miller that fell through but she was working on his own thing that was based on these malcolm johnson um, investigative uh articles that ended up becoming the basis for on the waterfront but mm-hmm. they emerged when uh when when kazan and miller fell out over kazan's you know uh huac testimony yeah they, uh, he started working with Schulberg, they got together with, uh, with Spiegel, got a production budget, less than a million dollars, but there was still a lot of anticipation for it because they were eventually able to get Brando, you know. Totally. Uh, but yeah, so the movie concerns, it's, it's a semi, uh, semi-fictionalized version of these Malcolm Johnson articles about, about waterfront corruption, union corruption on the docks. And how they were, uh, you know, basically shakedown operators, uh, deciding who could work and win, and you know, eliminating witnesses who were inconvenient to them and what have you. And it centers around the Brando character. Uh, he plays a man named Terry Malloy, whose brother is uh, basically the lawyer for uh, the goon squad. Um, you know, he works at the behest of Johnny Friendly, played by Lee J. Cobb, who basically runs the docks. And uh, as the film begins, he is sort of unwittingly leading uh, this, this uh, whistleblower, as we would now call it, they didn't have the term back then, um, to, his, to his death by luring him onto, uh, onto uh, the roof of a building that, where he lives and where he's gonna be thrown off. And then it starts uh, essentially a crisis of conscience for, for Terry Malloy when he meets the, well, he already knew her, but he becomes reacquainted with the, with the sister of the deceased yeah. In, and uh, and Father Barry, the Carl uh, Malden character, uh, basically try to turn him into a decent person over the course of about a hundred minutes or so. You know, right, right. Takes a lot more than his conscience, as it turns out. You know,
0: yeah, um, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, and, and it's and it's just <laughs> method acting to the max. I mean, you've got you've got like Carl Malden, Eva Marie Saint. Carlin Brando just going Paul's to the wall. Like I feel like, and, and 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 then I feel like this movie just kind of when you put like Rod Steiger, Lee J. Cobb, Martin Balsam, and um, and and Carl Malden together, I feel like that's like the Mount Rushmore of fifties character actors. Like maybe like. <laughs> Maybe throw like Thelma Ritter on there or something, but like I just feel like that's just the Mount Mount Rushmore of like character actors. Like God, if you, like if you're if, if if you're into old movies, like you just recognize like everyone that just pops up on the side here. It's 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 so fun. I feel like Carton Balsam's on screen for like two minutes. Oh, I know. He gets like
2: two scenes, basically. He gets the one scene where he gets called the girlfriend, and then another scene where he's <laughs> just standing there smoking a pipe right. in the background. Right, at the end of it. Yeah, and then <laughs> at the very end, you see him kind of like at the at the court hearing where he's just standing there.
0: Right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's a it's a fantastic um, cast. Like, I think that's my like first takeaway from this movie. Is just like, wow, everyone's just going all out acting. Um,
3: but you know for Steiger it was his first movie
0: oh I did not realize
3: that yes even Marie Saint too they were both this is the first movie I mean isn't that incredible that's
0: yeah I mean what 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 like an entrance onto the scene for both of them and then and, and then the other thing that I heard was um um so Aaliyah Kazan was trying to convince Brando to do the part and um and Brando was sort of unsure about it and so he got this up and coming actor to do like a test screening paul Newman movie. paul Newman it's to make to make um to make Brando jealous and of course of course of course they got paul newman and and that made Brando really jealous and so he eventually signed out to do the project <laughs> but yeah i mean, I mean having Paul Newman in this in this also would have been amazing not that not that Brando is at all
3: replaceable or anything um <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, they, as you mentioned, they're just using Newman for bait the same way they were Sinatra. I, I don't know if, if you came across that too, but you know, they initially signed Frank Sinatra, uh, but Spiegel never really intended to use him. I mean, he was basically just trying to attract the interest of various studio players and was always going after brando privately
2: yeah i think it was just like more of a handshake deal than an actual like contract
3: oh well, he signed him he, he oh, wow. uh yes and i when when brando <laughs> took the part from him i mean what happened was initially he demanded the carl malden part which kazan wouldn't give him because he and malden went way back and also i mean you picture frank sinatra doing that part anyway be no, really... that would have been bizarre right I mean,
0: honestly, brando anywhere in this movie would have been bizarre because it's all about like like Pop connections. He's like the most famous person in Hollywood to have like crazy,
1: pop-
3: right?
0: of connections that would have been so yeah. odd.
3: Right. right. He is from Hoboken, though.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, Jeez. Paige, any like first takeaways from this movie?
1: <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Whoa. Um. Jeez, <laughs> I don't know.
0: You can think or I mean- I'm
1: watching the movie. How about you guys? What, was it your first time seeing this movie? Oh, no. You know what? I actually saw it um, before in um, <laughs> a film, like some film composition course that I took um, in high school. Oh, okay. That's for, cool. Yeah, it was for English class. Like we had to do all these electives and um, and I chose this one and, and this professor or this teacher, whoa, uh, this teacher would... Um, show his favorite films in class and we would just talk about them. right it was a great class we it was watched awesome. Like some yeah, awesome yeah we both movies. took it at different yeah. times but
3: Terrific. yeah
1: it's um this was yeah this was that was the first time i watched this film but this was the second time i watched it so definitely a different perspective
0: yeah and it had been a while yeah, for both of us been a long
1: time yeah yeah i definitely the funny thing i remembered um <laughs> the first time i this whole time i thought that um the birds that were in the cage were chickens, <laughs> and then I watched it again. And I was like, waiting for the chickens. I was like, oh my god, they're pigeons,
0: <laughs> they're pigeons. <laughs> I was like,
3: yeah, awesome. Anyway,
0: they are. I was pigeons. like,
1: wow, it really. Yeah, in some ways, things. a chicken for
0: a chicken line would have made just as much sense in some in some ways. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They could have been canaries. Remember when the voice goes, <laughs> a pigeon for a pigeon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. What was, what was the thinking with picking this movie for you guys? Like, what was your, like, like, what's your, what's your, um, what's your history with this movie? What's your thinking with picking it? And like, and what, what draws you back to it, I guess?
3: You want to start? You want me to start?
2: Um, basically, he's a huge on the waterfront fan, and I had never seen it prior to us, um, starting our courtship, but I don't know, I, I would say like maybe halfway, maybe like three years ago or so, we finally got around to this one. I had um, never really been acquainted with Marlon Brando as an actor. beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I think we saw, oh, we saw um, Streetcar first and then eventually he got me to watch this and I really enjoyed it. But on our most recent trip to New York, that um, is a trip that we take yearly for um, it's like a dual trip for our anniversary and my B-Day, which were just a few days apart, funnily enough. Um, we actually had, a, um, I got us tickets to an outdoor screening of On the Waterfront at the City of the Museum of New York, which was really oh, so special cool. for us. I think we had the best time of anyone there. But <laughs> they had like a really nice jazz combo out front and like free drinks. So it was like, It was pretty oh, swanky. Yes. It's great. I mean, the, the second side was not the most um, advanced, but they, ha- you know, they had these, like, really rickety folding chairs, and your coccyx <laughs> starts hurting about, you know, 40 minutes into the film, but we still had a great time, and of course I cried on cue at all the right moments, and <laughs> nobody else was crying, I'm like, why aren't you sobbing? Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, oh what's gosh. with this woman? Yeah, no, that sounds awesome, and, like, free drinks, like, how, how did they manage that?
2: I, You know, it wasn't I think it was like wine and beer. There wasn't liquor. Okay, yeah, so yeah. there must be like a special license that, you know, because they are a museum, I'm sure that they have like an events catering license or something oh, like yeah, that for like sure. weddings, yeah. et cetera. So um, it was all in the ticket price and like the proceeds went back to the museum. It was a really great experience for us. Cool.
0: Perfect, perfect. I mean, I'm all, I, I, I'm, I'm like all there, like for f- f- free drinks anywhere they're available. That's like half the reason I love weddings but um
2: <laughs> you're okay free yeah. drinks is my middle name <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly oh my gosh um,
1: I was curious what um what was the first movie that you guys saw together that's a good question like as a couple
3: wow <laughs> oh
1: uh, okay does did we have to like finish it
2: I don't know both <laughs> both
0: either whatever whatever's a good story <laughs>
2: One of the very earliest films that I can recall him trying to get me to watch, which did not succeed on the first take, was Harold and Maude. Oh, okay.
0: um, oh and you know I'm, that's my favorite movie, right?
2: Well, that's it is movie. also like one of my favorite movies of top, you know, like top three. I It depends on the day, like where it rotates. It was the first time, it was so jarring for me because... I I was just really sensitive to all of the self-harm scenes and I didn't know anything about the movie before going into it. Yeah. I absolutely nothing other than this young guy meets this older lady. And I I was just like, if this is what this movie is gonna be, where this guy is just like faking his death all the time, I was too turned I was just like, No, I'm I'm traumatized, I can't do it. So um a few years later, I finally was like, let's try it again. And at the end, I was like, I love it. It's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. It just, it, it, it hit me at the right, it hit me at the right time in life where I was just, you know, I was like 17 and trying to figure my life out and sort of, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that depressed, but you know, I was just like, I was just kind of like, uh, and it's 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 just it's it's a very uplifting story. I just I love that movie, but yeah, uh,
2: the first thirty minutes, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> True, and it also like if you know if you know what's coming later, I feel like it gets easier too. But yeah, um, on the waterfront. Where were we with
3: that? Uh, where were we with that? <laughs> I've been I've had this one in my life for uh, about half my life. I think I first saw this when I was oh like. 18 or so and that's a very very long time ago you mean you, i could have babysat either of you as you know uh and so I, saw, I think i saw it first when i was working at a blockbuster for if that gives you any indication about oh do you I know I what
2: blockbuster am. is <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> of course. we were on like the very we were like the last generation to really experience blockbusters yeah <laughs> get like yeah, yeah. one movie a week my parents would let me pick one May yeah, go I'd there watch you pick like out the four movie. times <laughs> that week. Blockbuster's
3: great r a p blockbuster I know I worked there like when the ship was on the way down, like actively going down. yeah, <laughs> <You know. laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that was brutal. that was brutal who, who do you guys really stands out in the cast? I mean, I think I, I don't know if we should include Brando or not in this discussion because I mean, obviously like he's he's just flexing this whole movie, but I mean. Maybe Brando aside, who really stands out in the supporting cast too?
3: Well, Malden, Malden, Malden's nose—you know—I mean, <laughs> yeah, totally.
2: No body shaming.
3: <laughs> no, <laughs> not
0: at all. Well, I mean, his nose is his nose is great, and his whole his whole look. Um, I I loved his performance in this. Honestly, I didn't I didn't love his performance as much in Streetcar. I mean, like I love I love Streetcar so much, but this his performance in in this was really really over the top right yeah it, he's got that kind of
3: exuberance that he always has
0: yeah he's on know. level
2: 11
3: yeah totally.
2: Sure. totally i, I
3: agree with you, though i agree he's so much better in this than in streetcar because streetcar makes him play romance and that he just can't do that really no you know.
0: no no and here he's a priest he doesn't have to
3: play any sort of romance right. but yeah, uh he's, he's just self-righteousness which is what he has best anyhow yeah, yeah. that's perfect for him yeah <laughs> And you believe him. He's got you know all these people come from that theatrical background, you know. So I mean, like they're they're able to just like project before a camera the way a kid would, you know. When it's it's such a it, it, I mean, it's such an intense acting style, especially for the for the period, you know. I mean, totally. not, I mean the whole cast, but I would say Malden in particular really, you know, really spits yeah. out his, his dialogue.
0: Yeah, definitely, and Cobb too, just really particularly stands out to me. Um, I mean, I mean, I guess he always plays these kind of bruising big guys. I mean, like I think, I think, I think the thing I think of him most in is um, is uh, Twelve Angry Men. Oh yeah, is, it's a it's a similar character. It's not the same. I don't want to say it's the same character, but it's 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 a big angry New Yorker. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but but I mean, he he. he Kate does a great job just paying this kind of evil guy. And I-, I mean, you really are afraid of him in the movie, I think.
3: Oh yeah, he's terrifying. And they, they establish it right from the first scene with him. You know, when, when you're in the, oh, that- when they're counting all the money and everything and he tells the guy to go back to Greenpoint. I mean, it's awful. Yeah.
2: Totally. He's like smacking the cigar out of his mouth, just <laughs> slapping him around in front of a group of grown men. It's so degrading.
0: It's so great though. It's so great. Um. <laughs> eyes always like jerked yeah, off, to jerk the
1: side. off to the side <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun
0: yeah um, I thought,
1: um yeah is her name ava marie Eva Marie? yeah yeah Eva Marie. even well, marine insane oh she did a great job too she's she exceptional fabulous.
0: she's exceptional
1: yeah
0: um i have a i have a really fun story about her actually i, I don't know well I, I i i i i can tell it now i guess but I, I used to work at the stanford theater which i've talked about on the podcast which shows old hollywood movies and stuff and um She uh, she came in one day um, to see a showing of North by Northwest. Oh, cool! Which was so cool, and she sat in the balcony in the front row, and and someone and one of our customers always describes like sitting right behind her, but kind of to the side, and just watching her watch that like final kiss with Cary Grant and like just the light reflecting off her face as she's like watching her younger self and like her, her, her <laughs> most iconic role or one of her most iconic roles. And yeah, I mean, it was just, it, it, it was just a really, really cool experience. I, I mean, it's just something we always talk about, just having her there. It's just like, just, yeah.
3: Like, she, she, she
0: actually, she's such a classy old lady. Yeah, yeah <laughs>
3: she, uh, the, the auditorium where I went to college is named after her. She went to the same college as me.
0: Oh no way! That's awesome. That's, That's awesome.
3: Crazy. Yeah. Same oh, well, year too. <laughs> <laughs> I read that uh, it, was, it was actually Malden who scouted her, oh, and cool. um, yeah, and he he's the one who brought her to Kazan. He saw her in a in a play on TV or something like that. Mm. But um, she was actually trained. She she actually was educated at a convent, and so I think that may have had something to do with her being cast, you know, in the role.
0: I could see that. I could see that because she's very sort of righteous. Uh, though, 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 I think um, the other person that I saw that was up for this part was Grace Kelly, which I don't, I don't think. I mean, I love Grace Kelly. I just don't think that would
3: have worked. Yeah, it's too gritty for her, you yeah. know. But uh, Elizabeth Montgomery was also in the running, like years before Bewitched. Oh, weird. Yeah, that that could have worked. That could have worked. Like Grace Kelly to me, she she. she, she
0: he turned this down for rear window and that was definitely the right call for her oh yeah,
1: yeah. well Pretty i mean much. i could i could kind of see where they were thinking with it though because high noon is somewhat similar i don't think it worked like,
0: for me in high noon though
1: no it didn't for me either i mean but Despite i could see like her. if they were thinking like oh well she did this maybe she could do this as well but i mean yeah. i agree it's not my favorite Right.
3: I, I can't, she's not as expressive as Saint is. I mean, she yeah. you know, Saint's Saint's got almost like a feral quality to her, which she's at her most excited in this movie.
2: Yeah, she's like <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's, a, that's that's an interesting way to describe it. Does one of you want to talk
0: about just like your 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 favorite thing about this movie just overall? It can be it can be characters scene right uh, well, direction. Uh,
3: yeah, well I mean I, I'm uh, it's the <laughs> no one's, no one's really brought it up yet, but you know, it's the Brando performance, you know, I mean, Yeah. 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 We need to talk about Brando (laughs) because of how obvious it is as a response. But I mean, it's really revolutionary. Um, I mean, obviously he, he, he'd already come onto the scene, you know, four years prior and you had Monty Clift and James Dean by this time, but still, I mean, like just how expressive he is. It's really, it's really disarming. I mean, to think about a 1950s film, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's really something else. And obviously I think it's, you know, most uh, best exemplified in, in the contender speech, you know, okay. with Ryan Um I think Kazan himself said that that was the, you know, the, the best, he, he, he cited Brando as the, the giving the best performance basically in the history of the medium. You know, I mean, I don't know if I go that far, but it, it's you, you can make a, you can make a case for it. I mean, it's it's just outstanding.
0: He's you know? just so he's just so electric on screen. I mean, you just you watch him, and I mean, yeah, he's just he just he he just sort of bounces off at you. I I, I don't know how else to describe it. He's just um he's purely magnetic. I I think I think um I I, th- I think sometimes I get. I, I get frustrated with just him not enunciating,
3: <laughs> you know, sort of I called um, him Mumbles when he lost the part to him, he started calling him mumbles.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't even patter that much. He's just, he's so, uh, yeah, he's just, he, he, he's so charismatic. I, I think you were talking about a scene where he's playing with, her
1: glove glove
0: or something yeah. yeah
1: yeah i love that scene where he's just they're on like the swing set i think and it's the <laughs> first time they're really interacting on um on screen or at least in the film and um and he picks up her glove and just kind of puts it on is playing with it but it's just kind of i don't know it's just one of those things where it feels so natural it feels like something you'd actually see someone do but it doesn't even feel like it was necessarily scripted like um like he just picked it up and started playing around with it, it just felt like he was really in the character and just um well, kind of living it well,
3: what you described is is actually basically what's ha- what, what happened as far as uh what i've read you know that that it wasn't um it wasn't just like a coincidence when they were filming. They 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 had staged it by that point. But in a rehearsal process, um, she dropped the glove incidentally and instead of, you know, re- retaking Brando picked it up, started playing with it, you know.
2: Oh, okay. and, um,
3: Kazan actually I think later indicated that, that that it like solved a problem for the scene because
1: yeah. they they
3: didn't know Kazan basically was he didn't understand like how he could get them walking together and talking that first time because she's such a You know, she's this convent girl and he's this hood, you know, who's in with the mob and all this. And so she's just being polite at the onset. But then when he picks up the glove, then he's he's got the leverage and she, she has to get her glove back. And so she has a reason to stay there and talk to him. It makes the scene plausible. Or at least that's Kazan's feeling about it. I think that's really interesting
2: yeah yeah no is. i think that makes sense
0: huh. he's sort of he's sort of holding something of hers he's sort of yeah yeah, yeah. He,
3: he he's ki- giving her a reason to stick around that's that's that's, that's and it crazy. shows like his femininity the femininity it's got it's got it's the it's it, it's the first thing that displays any ambiguity for him mm-hmm. you know and that's really what's most important about him as a character is that even though he's like a this professional boxer like he is Has this tenderness that obviously his brother doesn't have, and that the people he works for doesn't have, even the his associates, the other dock workers. You know, I mean, he's he's. um, I mean, he. It's like even though he tries to fight it, there's something about him that's very empathetic.
2: Well, you do see that with the pigeons. His interaction with the birds, where he can't interact with people that way, but um, with the pigeons, you see. Not only is he taking care of his own, but he's also taking care of Joey's. Mm think a part of that is the empathetic response but also a little bit of his uh guilt over what has happened to joey Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and i think you're bringing up a good point that he's trying to fight it i mean like he 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 he, he seems like the whole time like he's he's trying to be a he's he's um he's trying to be a tough guy which is which is like like it's it's not quite in his nature like he, he he's a fighter but but he it's not. It's not really where his heart is, and that's and that's obviously in the famous. Like, I could have been a contender speech, but um, yeah. Like, I think, I think, um, I think, I think the key point to that is, is is that he does seem internally conflicted.
3: Right. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's just you know that that he you know has a tender side to him. I mean, also just. It's not. It's not like giving the testimony for him is just a matter of losing some friends. I mean, it it involves implicating his his only family that he has left. I mean, he's an orphan. You know, right. it's like Johnny Friendly's a a terrible guy, but you know, to Terry, he's a guy who took him to ball games when you know no one else cared for when him. He was in a you orphanage. <laughs> know? Yeah, and so I mean, he. I mean, he should obviously be able by this point in his life to parse right from wrong, but I think maybe that you know, the fact that he's like a prize fighter, you can maybe say he's got some like post-concussion syndrome or something, you know, exactly. he's, he's, punchy. he's obviously not a very intellectually oriented person, you know, so, I mean, he's just basically tries to live his life without thinking about the ramifications of, you know, of his decisions. I mean, he doesn't, I mean, he's not really a savant. I mean, or he's, he's not, he's not as ignorant as he lets on, because he gives her his philosophy on the date, you know, that stick it to him before he gives it to you, all that. It's mostly right? as
2: opposed to, you know, education.
3: Right.
0: Yeah. Totally. Totally. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, I think like we could easily spend the rest of the podcast on his performance. Like, it's 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 so it's so layered. It's so spectacular. I mean, yeah. A lot of people. I, I, I don't think it's only. Kazan that 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 cite this as possibly the greatest performance of all time I mean it's 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 it, it's really in contention for that i I, I heard the story about him him in him in acting class that always that always cracks me up like he was at the actors studio like a lot of these um young actors from this generation and and, and like I guess the acting teacher at some point said now, now, two guys are all a bunch of chickens, and, and the atomic bomb is coming, and, and 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 so everyone's running around the classroom, going wah, 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 like like freaking out, and Harlan Brando is just like quietly sitting in a corner, pretending to lay an egg, and the teacher comes up to him, he's like, "What's what's happening? What's the deal?" He's like, "I'm a chicken. I don't know what the atomic bomb is."
3: Uh, <laughs> That's what's so up. I like, sense memory i guess a chicken wouldn't really have that no, not not quite not quite he was really great at this thing that he didn't really care for doing and yeah, you know,
0: that's a, that's a good way to put it
3: be life i think you know i mean yeah. he's, he's you could say he's the best at this but he didn't have any respect for it i mean he he said movies aren't aren't art mm. you know?
2: yeah film phil- uh, philanthropy was more his game
3: yeah you know? you know yeah he he thought of it basically as a sideline so that he could uh, you know so somebody so could be an activist so that he could you know do the things that he thought were really important to him now I mean how much of that though is is really like sour grapes you know from honestly you know what I mean he he had a tough time uh, uh, later in the decade you know that we're discussing oh, for sure. kind of went into the wilderness and you know I, I mean the, the industry wasn't that kind to him for a while and so I mean it's easy to think if his career had gone a lot more smoothly maybe he would, would have liked being an actor for a living, you know.
0: Hard, yeah, that's so. true. That's true. I, I mean, it's hard to like. In some ways, it's hard to imagine having a better career than his. And in a lot of ways, it does seem self-destructive. A lot of his actions. Like I read at one point that he was only on set until four each day, and so some of the actors he had that in his contract. Contracted him. Yeah, he had that in his contract. And then I guess, I, I guess in the in the um, in, in, in the famous "I Could Have Been a Contender" speech, um, um, he didn't stick around for Rod Steiger's close-ups, which Rod Steiger continued to present for years because he was like his performance was so good because Rod Steiger was there for his close-ups, and there was just some some crew member just
3: because because they fed in the lines,
0: yeah, yeah, someone was hating in the lines or something, but uh, yeah. I, it, yeah, it seems like it seems like some of his behavior was self
3: destructive, but I don't know. You know, the thing is um uh, uh, this was a, a really weird time for Brando. I mean, first of all, he he didn't he was not associating with Kazan before this movie because of Kazan's HUAC testimony. I mean, Brando was was well, like a lot of other people on the left at the time thought that he had betrayed, you know, his former colleagues. Um right. When he when he testified before the House on American Activities Committee. And so, you know, Brando didn't didn't want anything to do with him. I mean, he had to be coaxed into doing the movie just because of the strength of the role. And like you said, being made jealous over Paul Newman and Frank Sinatra and all those sort of machinations that, you know, that's the only way they could even get him interested in the role in the first place. You know, he didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and he, he but, but, also he was trying to get a divorce at this time. His mother had just died. He was really starting to get into psychoanalysis, like four, you know, I mean, that's why he was out at four every day. So he could go see his, his psychoanalyst. And he apparently, he, he actually, um, I mean, it was very costly to do psychoanalysis at the time and he took $125,000 in cash instead of points on the gross for this movie so that he could pay for his. For his appointments. I'd say, I mean, he lost a ton of money. I mean, this was a very profitable film, you know.
0: Yeah, you'd think um, he'd have some, some cash at the time to pay for things, but was he just low on money? I, I, I couldn't say. There's I mean, no
2: telling how much um, therapy was costing him at four times a week.
3: Right. Plus, um, he was extremely impulsive. I mean, I, I was looking at his biography last week, you know, in anticipation of coming on here, and I mean, they were talking about. Right after filming was done, he holed up in like a bachelor pad in Carnegie Hall and was eating entire boxes of Malamars. Yum!
2: You know. Sign me
1: up. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like a great
0: week. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the, I mean, I mean, Quincy Jones gave that interview to I think Rolling Stones a few years ago, where he said, "Oh, Prando would fuck a pale box or something," and he said something along the lines of like out of control in that interview.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the same could be said for Warren Beatty.
0: Oh and, yeah, for sure, for you know, sure.
2: Like, so many, and um, I don't see that many people. I don't read about that many people who were uh, turning down Brando.
3: Yeah, he he ages. did have kids for sport though. That's no joke.
2: He loves to sire <laughs> children.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Paker, what was your, what was your. Favorite thing about this movie, other than other than Brando, I guess.
2: Other than like anything <laughs> regarding Brando, like we're going strictly not Brando related. No, 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 you
0: can you can go you can go like Brando's eye makeup. I mean, <laughs> no,
2: can- I mean, not Brando performance related specifically. Okay. I will um, switch the focus a little bit to Carl okay. Malden and yes. his "Christ in the shape up" speech. Um, right after, um, spoiler alert, after K.O. has been killed in the hold by the pallet of uh, Jameson, uh, Father Barry is called to, you know, do the rights, etc. But they've made an agreement, a uh, gentleman's agreement, that if <laughs> K.O. Uh, testifies against Lee Jacobs Cobb's character, John Friendly, and um, sort of exposes what's going on on the waterfront, that Father Barry will support him all the way and do what he can as far as um, his own personal efforts and whatever, um, I guess, thing, he you know, money or power that he has at his disposal to um, help him. And he's killed. Father <laughs> Barry shows up. I mean, like, Kelce Freeze, they kill him. And Carl um, Malden shows up to you know, do his little rites. I'm not Catholic, so I don't understand what's going on. I mean, he's just <laughs> praying over him, I guess. Right and um so then he's like, ah, oh, he throws his hat down and he's like, No, I made a promise. And then he starts prophetizing uh to the men, the longshoremen who have sort of gathered around to hear Carl Malden speak about his agreement with KO. And he goes into this really enlivened level 11 sort of speech (laughs) um about right and wrong and what is uh, christ-like and what is not and um how basically jesus is santa he sees you when you're sleeping he sees you when you're awake he knows
3: charlie's camel haircut right he
2: knows when you've been (laughs) bad or good or wear 150 You know, basically <laughs> telling the longshoremen like these guys take your money, they buy camel hair coats with them, and they don't even let you come and work some days. So what are you even doing? Why are you d and d, etc. And Tilio, one of the you know huge heavies, For- uh, he's a
3: former boxer.
0: He's
2: actually a former pro boxer. As
0: he, he looks like he could be, yeah.
2: Yeah, the three main heavies, um, Tilio, and then the shorter guy. Truck truck, and then the tall Ed, um, Eddie Munster, or Herman Munster looking guy, yeah. they're all former pro boxers. So he like yeah. comes in, like throwing detritus at Carl Malden, who is trying to make a speech. They're like throwing rocks at the dead body. It's just really abhorrent. And um, <laughs> Terry knocks this guy out straight up, right in front of Friendly, who's standing, looming above, kind of watching over the proceedings but um
3: it's kind of a turning point for him
2: yeah i definitely i think it's the first time you see terry's character like sprouting um sort of like a conscience after his date with edie and her plea for help and really seeing how all the pieces are kind of like coming together like He just was on the fringes of the Joey situation, didn't really know exactly what was going on and then got the full dosage of the severity of the situation with Ko and his demise and was like, wow, this is, this is really serious and I really, he's starting to want to kind of change the tide and it's also um, the introduction of a theme that I think is silent but pretty um, Powerful in the film, and that is of like the journey of Joey Doyle's jacket as a symbol of like kind of the banner of, of just like this. We're first it's Joey who's going to um, kind of testify or give you know name names etc., and then his jacket is given to Ko, and then he kind of comes to his uh, his death, and then.
3: Edie gives it to Terry. Edie,
2: well, yeah, you know, they give it back to Edie, and then Edie hands it over to Terry later. Uh, but you see that return of the jacket to Edie, who is basically, has been trying to appoint Terry as the helpmate in in cracking the Joey Doe case and really getting things moving um, as far as change on the waterfront. And I think it's a very powerful speech. It really goes, um, it's one of the more, electric. I mean, all of Malden's moments are electric, let's be honest. But, you know, his character was kind of based on a real-life priest named uh, Father John Coridan, who was supposedly like an, you know, big-time smoker and drinker. He was kind of, not like a roughneck, but definitely like a hit,
3: foul-mouthed
2: priest. He was not your squeaky queen, uh, squeaky clean priest. And so I think Malden plays it a little bit cleaner and a little bit, you know, He's very naive um, at the beginning. Wait, you know? Exactly. He's a lot right. more square in the beginning. And you see, this is where he's really starting to come into the John Corridan side of the character, where he's, you know, Pops handing them the smoke when they're on the lift coming out of the hold. And, you know, he's looking like a total badass, basically, like, you know, standing over the dead body. And I just think it's a really powerful moment for a lot of people in the film. I think it's really powerful for Call Malden. He feels empowered in his position to help and he's really, really committed uh, to the cause of his, quote, you know, parish. And then uh, it's powerful for, for Edie to see Terry um, retaliating against his own, you know, John Friendly and his goons. And then it's powerful for Terry as well because it's like he's starting to see like, I want to hear what this guy has to say. Just let him finish. There's no need to be um, so hostile and really kind of like turning his back a little bit, starting to turn his back on, um, what was his sort of like mob family.
0: Totally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to say back to the jacket point. Um, what I noticed on the second watch was, um, at the beginning he was wearing this black and white checkered jacket. And, and sometimes I look into symbols a little too much, (laughs) but I was kind of thinking like, um maybe that was some kind of foreshadowing like he everything's either black and white or something is feeling mixed i don't know like um but but yeah i noticed the jacket change and i was like okay that's like definitely um a point where um maybe his maybe he's decided his um like direction or feelings on the situation and he he's he's becoming kind of a different um, he's showing a different side to his character at this point onward. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. definitely. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. and then and then and then just that final that final moment in that scene. Of just him and the body being lifted in the light by the crane, I mean yeah god, I think I think in some ways that might be the most traumatic moment of the film for me, just him being lifted in the light, like he's he's in the, he's in the shadow with like a single light cast on him, and then and, and then I think it does two things it's lifting him obviously closer towards God, like the body is potty is literally ascending closer towards heaven, but also um Johnny friendly is sort of on on the upper tier like he's he, 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 he's he's rising past past the ranks of Johnny Friendly. So I think that 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 shot is just so so intense and such an intense way to end that just amazing uh, speech with with Carl
3: Malden. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting that you bring up the thing with Johnny Friendly because I just noticed the most recent time we watched you know, how you say he's going past Johnny Friendly, you know, and, and, and it's interesting that Johnny, you you see Johnny Friendly take his hat off, you know, when, when Father Barry comes up. I mean, it, it it really is indicative of, it's like, there's this one force, you know, that is untouchable, even to the powers of corruption, you know, and it's it's very interesting.
2: I do think there are lots of small little nods and symbolisms uh, of a religious nature in this film, uh, which is really interesting because, you know, Kazan was not Catholic, but there.
3: Kazan was not religious. Whatsoever. He was not
2: religious at all, but his upbringing a, atheist, was
3: you know. Jewish, right?
0: Interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah he, was a, he, he was, he
0: was, he was Jewish, but I didn't know he was an atheist as well. That, that That's interesting.
2: Yeah, his heritage is Jewish, but he was not raised um, religious, to my knowledge. And then, but you do see this just like a barrage of like tiny little uh, mosaic points of these Catholic or religious, uh, symbolisms throughout the film, which I think is really interesting, including the jacket thing that you were mentioning, Paisha. I think Mm -hmm. it's kind of like once he trades one garment for another, he's kind of like embodying, Mm -hmm. um, the righteousness of the, of the cause. And, and, you know, um, Father Berry's tie into that.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: He's, uh, yeah, as far as, uh, Ilya Kazan and religion go, um he said uh when he was interviewed you know for the documentary Elia Kazan and Outsider he said that uh i believe only in the goodness of man you know mm. so I and mean, that's he, i mean he you know he used to be a communist obviously that's what his his right. testimony was about and it's a central tenet of communism a- atheism is a is a central tenet of communism you know so i mean it, oh. it's not surprising i mean he came from the group theater i mean it, it just he was a member of uh, you know the the intellectual left, so I mean, very few of those people were practicing religious at that time in general.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, so Kevin, what you just said, and Kevin, how on the nose, Carl um, Malden's speeches about 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 why you should rat, basically. Um, um, I think Cow has as good a time as any t- to talk about just like the politics of this movie. Um, I'm sure you guys know, but just poor the listeners, just like a brief history. I guess he was, he was in the, he, he, he was in the communist party possibly in the thirties. Is that when? He joined in 1934 and he was out a
3: year and a half later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he, he was in the communist party when he was in, and the half in the thirties. And, and, um, and, and then, and then in the fifties the red scare and <laughs> McCarthyism came and, and they were asking people to testify for HUAC, the House Un-Americans Activities Committee. And um, and he was one of the and and, and basically you were pushed into a corner, because if you if you testified, um, you you were considered a traitor. But if you didn't, you were blacklisted from Hollywood. Um, He was he he was one of the people that chose to testify. And it haunted his career for years later. I um, mean even when I think it was 1999 when he was accepting his lifetime achievement award at the Oscars, and l- like if you look at the footage, like half the people aren't standing. Right. Um, Nick Nolte, they cut to him, and he's just sitting there with his arms crossed,
3: like he's just like actively pissed. Um, but a lot of mitigating factors with regard to his testimony that makes it different from the average HUAC testimony. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, I mean, in particular most of the people who were being called before the HUAC didn't have another lucrative career that they could turn to, you know, I mean, Wait, I, I was going
0: to talk about this. Yeah.
3: On Broadway. He was in, I mean, not just active. I mean, he was the most successful Broadway director of the preceding decade and there was no blacklist in the, in New York Broadway. I mean, he, you know, he, he could have told the HUAC where to go and he could have still worked on Broadway. And that's exactly what Arthur Miller did. And that's what exactly what Arthur Miller asked him to do. Basically, right. you know, because he apparently took this walk in the woods with Arthur Miller trying to decide what he was going to do before he appeared for the second time. The first time he, he you know, pled the fifth or did whatever it is when you, you know, say you're not going to say anything. But right. then, but then a few, uh, you know, about a month later, he went back, he named eight of his colleagues from the group theater. He would go on to claim throughout the rest of his life that all those people had already been named so that it didn't matter that he had named them. In fact, only six of them had been named previously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what really distinguishes Kazan's HUAC history with, with most of the other people, I mean, for instance, Bud Schulberg and Lee J. Cobb, who were also both friendly witnesses for HUAC. Didn't realize that. That's interesting. They both were, yeah. Um, it, it, is that um, in Kazan's case, he took out this advertisement, uh, you know, like a few days after he gave the testimony uh he later claimed that the that the that the statement that he gave in this advertisement was written by his wife um after he got a whole bunch of blowback about it but i mean it's his name signed to blame it, it on right. the wife <laughs> his <name signed> to <laughs> it. and it is this long screed about how people uh on the left uh i mean he's not even addressing people on the right because you know why even you know but but he's basically saying like people on the left you know have an obligation if you know anything about communism to come forward and give this testimony because, you know, basically like there's this, you know, creeping specter, you know, like he, he basically, he he gave the impression that he had testified for political reasons when in fact he clearly testified for personal reasons. He had fallen out with the group theater people many years before he was not friends with those people in the first place. I'm not saying that he did it to be malicious. In fact, he really didn't want to do it and he regretted right. it for most of his life, but he did it to save his career. He did not do it. Because he thought that communism was a danger in America, you know what I mean? Like, I just think it was extremely disingenuous, you know, and that—that's I think what a lot of people continued to hold against him years later is that not only did he do this, he basically patted himself on the back for it and said, "You should do it too."
2: And he continued to um, say that afterward. It made him basically a better director. He was just like, testifying made me a. A better artist. Said it made a, better, a man out of him. It made a man out of me. It made me a better artist <laughs> because you know um, his movies did start doing a lot better afterward, and I don't know if that was incidental.
3: Well, he said it freed him from the burden of other people's expectations. He said basically that being ostracized by all of his friends in New York, and you know, realizing you know that uh, that you know if he stuck to his guns, it was going to cost him he he, he it, it changed the way that he approached his movies I mean, he basically decided that like i i'm just gonna lay it all out in line because i've already become a pariah and you know yeah. now what's important to me is expressing myself in the most forthright way i possibly can totally I, totally mm-hmm. yeah sorry I
2: about the um the i didn't know about this walk is supposed walk in the woods with arthur miller i didn't know
0: that's awesome yeah
2: had, asked him basically not to testify and that he could come to broadway etc but um i wonder if that you know the charlie and terry take a take a taxi scene where they're together in the taxi and charlie's begging him to take this job right, uh, right. To shut up and just keep quiet i wonder if that's kind of like a representation of the um, conversation that he had with Arthur Miller where Arthur is begging him not to testify and just come and work on Broadway instead. That's interesting.
0: It certainly, it certainly seems like that, like how mm-hmm. kind of that you're saying that that's a really, really interesting point. Yeah. I, I just yeah. think that this, this movie is like, it, it's impossible to see this movie and not read it through that lens, which yeah. I think is so interesting. And I think that's, that's part of the reason I struggle just slightly with the movie is just because, um, the political allegories kind of stop and end with testifying. I mean, I know in the fifties they were thinking, they were they, they 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 were thinking that communism was so dangerous and stuff. But I mean, this whole idea that like, like I mean, I mean, this whole idea of like the mob controlling everyone's lives and and killing people and stuff. I mean, I mean, I mean, like the the communist party in the fifties was obviously not like a crime. But it's not like a crime family so i mean it's it's sort of odd to me that like it seems like it, it seems like he was so fo- he, he was so focused on like the testifying aspect and i think that's part of the, that 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 just seemed to be a lot of like the, the blowback for him is the fact that this movie is kind of him doubling down on his reason to testify
2: yeah right
3: I think it's it's fair to note, though, that he didn't write the film. Bud Schulberg wrote the film. Okay, okay. You know? I mean, Kazan had input. They worked together on the formation of the script. They definitely guided it together, you know. But but you know, it wasn't only his input, you know. So I mean, it, it's it's fair to say that there, are, you know, but there there's, there are other perspectives involved. But I think that there's too much correlation between his personal history and Terry's history to to entirely oh, yeah. clearly. And I think that you're right that it's very it's very reductive to compare the communist party to the mob running jersey docks. i mean it's it's ridiculous frankly and it's a it's a loaded metaphor i mean it's it's a you know i mean they they, the the film i mean it's i don't know i mean like it it it's on its face it's kind of like a social problem movie if you're you know putting it in a genre closet but really it's a melodrama
0: yeah and
3: As such, you I mean, know. The, the music. Right, yeah, I mean. <laughs> Leonard Bernstein's score, we haven't even talked about that yet, yeah. The is, is the ambiguity of Terry's character. But you have the characters like Eva Marie Saint and Father Barry who, you know, never put a foot wrong and are just completely blessed people. And then you have the horrible people on the other side, you know, uh, I mean, there's something that's really very reductive about the entire moral enterprise of the film. And I that's think that it. having the focus be about the waterfront corruption really, really takes away from the power of the film. I think it's. I think the film is 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 better appreciated just as a, a, as the personal journey of Terry becoming a more conscientious person, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that the testimony is really just kind of incidental to that. And I think that in particular, that's exemplified by the fact that, notwithstanding all the personal growth that he over, undergoes over the course of the film it is only the death of his brother that actually moves him to testify. You know what I mean? He's still arguing with Edie when he breaks into her house and sexually assaults her right before. Like he's still arguing with her, you know, over like, I don't, you know, I know what you want me to do, but I don't want to do it because that's my brother and all this stuff. I mean, it's not until he, he sees his brother hanging from a meat hook that he is actually moved to do the right thing, you know? And so, I mean, I think um in his case there's a a great deal of moral complexity and it stands in great relief to all the other characters who are kind of cutouts in that way.
1: Well, I I think this is a good time to interject. This was going to be my draft pick.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, well let's just
1: <laughs> just the whole just
0: move into your draft pick then? Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, we've already pretty much gone through the whole point of it, but um for me like I watched it the for, for the first time about 6 years ago or more, 7 years ago and Um, and then just, you know, recently like last night. And so between that point and last night, the one thing that I had remembered from the movie was the whole, um, political background and, Mm -hmm. um, and the red scare and, um, and that whole component. And I just remember, I remember that just being a huge, um, kind of eye-opening experience as a high schooler, just trying to understand um, that whole perspective. And I think, um, and so for me, that was just the first thing I thought of when we were thinking of the draft. Like, uh, I have to, like, that's that's the first thing that I remembered about the film and um, that really stuck with me through the whole.
0: Yeah, sort of um, talk about, talk about the answer yeah. that. But yeah, I, yeah. I went
1: through that, so. Um, anything <laughs> else
0: you guys, you guys wanna to touch on with HUAC before we move on here? <laughs>
2: Um, just like very, very small is Dan's, um, interpretation of the longshoremen as the sheeple who are going from blithely D D, you know, ride or die. Like we're going to put money, um, into our homes, and food on the table through this, um, John friendly character who is supposed to represent the communist party, um, just completely despite what sort of um, efforts Father Barry and Terry Malloy are taking, even after Terry Malloy's testimony, even Pop shuns him, you know? Even, I mean, all of the guys who have been sort of like kind of in on the maybe getting to the bottom of Joey Doyle's murder, completely shun him, don't talk to him, don't want anything to do with him, call him a canary, call him a pigeon, et cetera. But then once he gets his ass kicked, by uh, the Communist Party, by John Friendly and his goons, then they're like, oh, we're ready to stand with you now. All you got to do is walk in and we'll follow you in. And so it's just like this blind faith that these longshoremen are showing, I think is completely two dimensional, where it's just like, okay, well, if we don't have this dictator, we're going to go with this other guy who has just deposed the dictator. Right. It's just so weird. It's so weird and I think Richard came upon something. Um, who wrote it?
3: Oh, this, this guy, this other filmmaker who used to be a journalist, this guy, Lindsay Anderson. He's most famous for making this movie with Malcolm McDowell called If, where these kids like... Oh, and oh,
0: I heard of that one, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, back, back in, in in the 50s, he was running a magazine in England and he said that the ending of the film, whether consciously or not, uh, is basically uh, fascistic. You know, that, uh, and, and I, I assume that he's he's referring to the elements that she's talking about, this sort of strongman complex that the longshoremen seem to have. Right, you know, I, mean, oh, yeah, is- I was saying
0: the same thing.
3: There, you know, I mean, I think that the, people tend to think that the elephant in the room is the HUAC stuff, but I think the elephant in the room is at the end of the movie is really silly.
0: In some ways, it's more of an argument in favor of fascism or Communism in that, like, there's a strike at the end of the movie. Like, they're standing up to mm-hmm. the head of the factory, the head of the 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 the, the head of the co- committee, and in some ways, it's sort of it's sort of pro-worker. I, I mean, I mean, going off the fascist point, I was like, the end of this movie is a lot like Petropolis, which we saw yeah, pretty recently, is. which is a very yeah. fascist mm-hmm. ending to a movie. But um, yeah, I, no, I completely agree with that. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm very very opposed to hitler but hitler loved the film so i mean he he took it the same way yeah he
2: definitely read into it the same way yeah it's just so weird for him to want to um politicize this you know the subversion of it you know what i mean um the undertones of it are political at the end after the entire whole point of the movie was for him to testify then you see it's just kind of like well, these are the fascist guys, and now it's pro-union, and we want to run, it give us back our union, and we'll run it on the up and up. Yeah. You know, it's just like, okay, so this is communism, you know what I mean? This is like, That's exactly what I was, yeah. So what are you really saying?
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it seems like the end of the movie is supposed to be an allegory for, like, the Stations of the Cross, which obviously doesn't reach me as someone who's not religious, but you know, based on the the Father Barry stuff earlier and all that, I mean, it seems to me like that they're clearly making, you know, at least an implicit comparison to you know, to Jesus with with Terry's conclusion.
2: Which is so weird to mix all of these political and religious tones throughout to where they become extremely entangled and entwined, which I think is still um, really prevalent today where a lot of people's political beliefs really hinge on their religious beliefs.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. That's yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a really good point. I think the, I think the end entangles a lot of things and it's sort of, you know, it's sort of hard to know where, I mean, I I mean, so I'm attributing, I'm, I'm I'm attributing the the passage of the story to Aaliyah Kazan, but I mean, it's sort of hard to know where, what the 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 political message of the movie is kind of supposed to be. I mean, it's clearly like pro testifying, pro like truth coming out. But it's it's mm-hmm. um, I th- I think you're right that that there is some entanglement beyond that point.
1: Yeah. Well, I also just wonder if they left it, if they purposefully made it ambiguous so that it wasn't necessarily calling out one side a little too much. I don't right. know. That's a good point. Yeah.
3: I wish that it had been left more ambiguous, frankly. I mean, I, I
0: think Me that the <laughs> would
3: have been better off if it had ended after he gave his testimony. You know, but I, you know, I, I think that they, they wanted this big climax, you know.
2: But like I was telling Richard, even if they had like a, a courtroom, or you know how like Johnny Friendly blew up and he's like, you're done, you'll never work again, you know. But even if Jerry had had his, you know, I'm glad what I've done to you speech there, and you kind of like left it where you're like, oh, is he going to get murdered by these thugs? Yeah. Like, are the, you know, is right. the- it's like the
3: end of Sweet Smell Success. Right. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's, t- what's going like, to happen yeah, exactly.
2: Right. Is the waterfront crime commission going to crack down? And right. you know, is are Edie and Terry going to get together? You never really know. And at the very end, you just see, you know, Father Barry and Edie arm in arm looking at each other, like, <laughs> we really did this. And Terry's like, <laughs> you know, uh, dragging his leg up the pier, all bloodied and bruised. And you're just like, okay. Well, he would be dead, first yeah. of all. There's no right. way he's surviving that beating without being completely unconscious, at least, and most likely dead. Mm-hmm. And he's going to go and swing a hook for 12 hours. Get out of here, you know? I mean, I <laughs> can, he seems like a superhuman, Prize boxer, hottest man alive. I understand, but
3: well, I think he's just the totem. He just has to get in the
0: door.
2: He just got to get in the door. Yeah. Everybody will go in. He gets and to then, sit on and the then
0: and <laughs> then he can <laughs> collapse and take the day off. <laughs> take the day off. Come back tomorrow.
2: Exactly. Yeah, just lay like about for a while. Look at your Playboy magazine. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah,
0: exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I think I think my favorite thing about this movie. Is probably just how pretty it feels. Like, I mean, like, it's so odd because it's the 50s, and I feel like I just feel the 70s coming on. Mm. Like, it's like,
3: you know, I mean, it was was not common at that time to shoot everything on location like that. It's true. Mm. It's
0: true. The other movie that I just saw recently was The Naked City, which I don't know if you guys have seen, but that's another movie. It's just everything on location. It's just so. Mm spectacular and in, in 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 the same
3: there are six million stories in the naked city like that's all i remember <laughs> from that movie. i saw it like 10 years ago
0: <laughs> yeah no no that, that's that's awesome yeah, yeah yeah i love the voiceover in that but um yeah like the on location stuff is like is super awesome i mean it reminds me i think possibly like like because of the black and white but it reminds me of like Caging Bowl with kind of like the boxer and the slums and everything and it's a very different story but but i mean it just it 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 feels in so many ways like you're skipping over the 60s and you're just straight into the scorsese kind of morality plays that you get in the 70s
3: i don't know it's so cool mm-hmm. that way I'm Obsessed with on the waterfront so it's really interesting that you would say that Scorsese just adores on the waterfront. I mean, to him, it was like a complete game changer. He said it was like represented seeing, you know, his own kind of people on the screen for the first time. And even though the milieu is mostly Irish and on the waterfront, I mean, you still, you have Tilio, you have Truck, you know, and, and I mean, just the idea of seeing, you know, the first generation people, of this sort of, you know, ethnic representation on the screen to him was a huge breakthrough in the 50s. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it feels yeah. a lot like class. Uh, yeah. He he loves the movie. He's on the special features for the Criterion uh, release of it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think I think he stood with Aaliyah for
3: that Oscar speech that I was talking about too. I think he was like up on stage. One of his his most adamant defenders. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the also, also the, the Raging Bull comparison, I mean, obviously I think Terry's a much nicer man than Jake LaMotta, uh, but but uh, I was struck when you mentioned that by how similar, I think, physically, Kathy Moriarty and Eva Marie Saint are. It's like, the, you know, they're almost like, a, they're a very fitting analog,
2: actually. But when we watch the... Um, I the don't personalities
3: know aren't so similar. Yeah, yeah. I'm not,
2: I think it was, we watched this um, documentary, Ely Kazan, and Outsider, where... Someone accused him of always having a blonde woman in a white slip <laughs> in all of his movies. And you see, even Ray St. in her yeah, like white slip, and we're like, where's Pop? Like the one time right. Pop's not in. She's at home in her slip and Terry busts in. Right. And you know, he's like, I'm gonna kiss you and you're I know gonna what love me. Right. That scene in general cracks me up because he's banging on the door, she gets up she fixes her hair she looks at the door and then she's like i'm locking the door
1: uh, yes that so reminds me of um i think it's dial M for murder where i think it was grace kelly grace who was kelly. talking to hitchcock and was like why would i put on my robe if i'm going to the door or it was something like that if i if i thought my husband was coming to the door oh was that it and then it could be yeah. and so it kind of changed the uh the way that they played out the scene a little bit but I thought that was funny. Yeah, right that's, such that a, that's like,
0: like has such an odd scene. I mean, it, it 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 looks in some ways like the beginning of a porno with him just like busting the yeah. door, and she's like. <gasps> <laughs> I mean, much better acting, obviously.
2: Let me fix my hair. Oh my god, it was. <laughs> but you know, you do get that moment where you're like, oh, is she gonna let him in? You know, like she's fixing her hair. Yeah. And yeah. then she waits a second, and then she's like, no, I'm locking the door. <laughs>
1: clutching the sheet to her chest,
2: and she's like, stay away from me! (laughs) I know what you want me to do, but I'm not gonna do this, so forget it! And, you know, she's like, I didn't say I didn't love you, I just said, stay away from me! (laughs) (laughs) A sexual assault, which apparently is okay since it's Marlon Brando, but no, it's horrible, you know? He just like totally grabs her, thrusts her in this corner, and just like kisses her into submission, yeah. and i have i have a little bit of a problem with it i'm gonna it's like of course you're like oh we'll let it slide because it's brando and it's melodrama and it's the 50s but it's also like hud you know like he was kind of a good guy he was a total gentleman with her up
1: until then yeah
0: no totally and page and i looking at each other like in that scene where we're just like eek like uh,
1: <laughs> doesn't age doesn't age well, well. <laughs> yeah, not so
2: bad it was super romantic right yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. exactly it just plays differently uh. now i'm
3: sure the last tango brando stuff that's true
2: that's I am 100 <laughs> percent here for i'll go on record i love that movie Great Five, i mean it's just one of the best movies i've ever seen and i know everybody hates it so um i really can't be super mad at terry malloy's sexual assault uh when i I am a self proported lover of Last Tango in Paris.
0: I have not yet seen Last Tango in Paris. I'm very excited to see it. I I, 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 I heard Brando in an interview said one time that that um, Last Tango in Paris kind of broke him. And yeah, so he- every oh, okay. movie after... Tari, what, 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 what's up? I've,
3: yeah, he, he said he wouldn't reveal himself like that anymore, right? Or something like that? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And he said, like, every movie after that, he, he was honing it in but he said like the audience didn't notice the difference <laughs> <laughs> or something
1: like that that's funny
0: <laughs> which is just great um but yeah no no no. i just love that quote about brando i'm trying to think if there's anything else i have in my notes here oh the the, the leonard bernstein score i mean so this is apparently the only
3: non-musical he scored Right, and he wanted to get his uh, get get their money's worth. I mean, it it is, it's it's a huge part of the movie. I mean, for better and worse, you know. Yeah, I mean, there are times when I think it's like very intrusive, and I need to turn the movie down. But at the same time, like I gotta say, the the strings during the contender speech, which is like the exact same music cue from when he finds Charlie on the hook, like oh. it's a panbolician mm. thing. Like I did, I hear the strings, and I just immediately start weeping. You know, so that's, I mean, I got to hand it to him for that, I suppose.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I, I think the only problem I have with it is just like after seeing West Side Story, I'm just waiting for guys to, when y'all run, chat, y'all run. Like, I'm just, I'm just waiting for the, <laughs> for like the jump in cue. What I hear is weird clashes and whatever. But I mean, yeah, the score is awesome in this. The score
2: right. is great, is loud.
3: Yeah, it comes yeah. in a lot of brass.
2: Wow, it's brass. I feel like I'm like whoa DCI all over again. I'm just like I'm in drunk before Let me go get my gear.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it's a big part of the movie. I, I, I don't think we have time for probably like another round of the draft actually.
2: <laughs> but like,
0: but like any any um any just other random thoughts about the movie.
3: Oh well, I mean you know I think it's uh, I think it's very much an actors movie. You know, uh, I think that, you know, Kazan was basically the first to say at this time in his career that he didn't have a a particularly sophisticated visual sense. I mean, I like a lot of the location shooting. I like all the steam across the street from the church and all that. But I mean, it's a film uh, where, you know, I mean, situationally, we already talked about how kind of juiced and melodramatic it is. I mean, it really comes down to the performances, you know, and, and if you if 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 you're not someone who appreciates like a theatrical style it's it's likely not going to sit that well you know with you but i think that if you can if you're if you're down with the sort of poetic realism vibe i mean it's like there's a freshness to the performance that really is extremely uncommon for the era you know what i mean you just don't you don't see performances that are this lively from early 1950s
1: films
0: i think lively is a really good word just um Yeah. It just, I I mean, theatric and lively, they just, yeah. I mean, it, it, if, if you watch old movies, it does, it does sometimes take you a second to get into even, even a great performance performer like Petty Davis or Catherine Hepburn can seem stylized, you know, if you're, if you're watching it now and they're, and they're still great, but it can seem stylized at first. And like this, I just feel like anyone can watch this movie and just, and just and just you see the acting and you're just like, oh my god, it's it would work for any generation of people. It's just I mean, it's right. so electric.
1: It's
3: the story is very simple and mm-hmm. everything can be read on everyone's face. I mean, everyone is so expressive. I mean, sometimes to the point where it's ridiculous, like when Ava Marie Saint's running out of the bar, you know, but I mean like it's you know, there's you I mean you can just you can feel everything. You can feel how cold it is, you see everybody's breath. I mean totally yeah. too cold to overact. That's what he told Spiegel. <laughs>
0: Totally, totally. Um, Haker, any thoughts about the movie?
2: Um, Mostly I'll just throw in on top of Brando's performance. is just, honestly, has he ever looked better than in this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Just going to objectify for a moment, if I may. First smile, (laughs) swings up. Dude, by the nose where he looks and he's like, ah, you know, exactly. And then on their date, especially to me was unreal and I do think that there is a really smart kind of um, framing device going on in the bar scene with um on their date with um Edie you see her by the you know there's a jukebox behind her but behind Brando there is a um stained glass partition of some sort and it's he's perfectly framed in this thing Mm -hmm. you start seeing that transformation on his face And he just looks like this bulldog of where you're like, yeah, they can be totally scary, but they're usually just very sweet and you just want them to slobber all over you and you're totally fine with that. (laughs) And I do think that there's just like a little bit of correlation of that very small religious nod as well, where it's like, oh, he's like framed in this stained glass. He's like the patron saint of the waterfront, like he's going to become kind of like that crucifixion as Carl right. Malden would say. Um right, because IRL realized. he would
3: be martyred for this.
2: Normally he would <laughs> he would have been martyred. They would have killed him, but you know, of right. course, because it's a melodrama that he gets to he gets to sort of ascend um, that role. But man, he's so freaking un ungodly good looking in this movie. I just <laughs> I can't even I can't even focus sometimes. Which I know makes me sound like a total um, perv, but I'm a filth queen, I can't help it. He just (laughs) looks
0: (laughs) To wrap things up, uh, I don't know. So how we can do, I usually ask my guests to pick a quote from a movie that they love and to that quote in character. Um, Since we have two guests, we have the opportunity to have two closing quotes, which is very exciting. Um, Unless you guys have one that you wanna do together. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh one again. Whatever um whoever wants to go first, if you have a quote in mind, all
2: right. you, you go first. Alright,
3: all right. Uh I'm gonna do Peter Falk from Husbands. <laughs> if you could just laugh, that
2: would be terrific. <laughs> let's see this movie he 's literally talking to like a 16 year old Asian chick that he has brought to his hotel room to bang and she 's laying on the bed crying oh my God. He's like yelled at her
0: that 's that 's so funny
2: Jesus
0: cried dad a story because he was he, he was at med school in l a and he and he was walk he, he, he was studying super late at a cafe and he was walking back to his car it was two a m
1: and he's walking
0: he's walking through the streets of LA in the eighties and he and he walks past Colombo. Well well colleague we'll walks past Peter Falk and he goes, Hey, it's Columbo and Peter Falk goes, How you doing? And my dad's
2: like, ah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he talks about that all the time. He loves yeah, he, he gets so excited. Haker, <laughs> <laughs> what's your what's your too. closing quote?
2: Um, So, as we establish Harold and Maude, top, top, top tier films for both of us, so Ruth Gordon is very near and dear to my heart. I love her. I think she's amazing. Um, And so I'm going to do a quote from Rosemary's Baby. It's the scene where Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes go to the cast apartment for dinner the very first night, and they're talking about the Pope. And she's just talking about how much money they spent. She's like, I can just imagine the money they spend on robes and jill owls. <laughs> <laughs> really good Ruth Gordon. Yeah, was. <laughs> These uh pubs spending all the money on their clothes and they're they're bling and I just it amazing and super, super on brand for Ruth Gordon. <laughs>
0: That's a great Ruth Gordon impression, a great Peter Falk impression. It's, it's, been, it's been an honor having you guys on. This has been super fun. Thank
3: you.
0: Thank you it's so much for having us. Guys. It was great seeing you guys. Of course. It was great seeing you guys too. Off to you again soon.
3: Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinefleck and I will see you next week.